Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to. Today I'm having a gas with Eric Valentine, a record producer with an enviable track record, producing albums for artists like Queens of the Stone Age, Smash Mouth, Good Charlotte, Maroon 5, Weezer, and many more. That's why I got this SM7 because you know it just you can be right bite the mic and there's no reflections yeah, yeah. even if you're in a hugely lively room. So yeah, those things are great, man. They're, they're great for radio and great for for actually capturing vocals. Yeah. Do you ever use Do you ever use this mic on on records? All the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'd Give us some examples. That. What's that? Give us some examples. Yeah. So um, uh, the singer for Smash Mouth. Um, SM7 loves his voice, loves his voice. He's got a big, breathy voice with a lot of overtones and stuff. Um, so I use it for all of that. Um, Adam Lazara on uh, for Taking Back Sunday, he was an SM7 guy. Um, I'm trying to think who else who else was really amazing on the SM7. Black Black Dahlia from the Dwarves, um, he was definitely SM7. Um, who, who else? Yeah, I know there's some others in there, but there's certain people where just no other mic even comes close, you know? Yeah. And and I always heard famously that Steven Tyler always used an SM7 and Michael Jackson used an yes. SM7 a lot. Yeah. yeah. I know that Kiedis used it, or Kiedis is it, on um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic because... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Have you seen the documentary? Is it Funky Monks? I know I've seen clips from it and I've seen him, you know, grabbing yeah. onto an SM7 singing into it. Yeah. 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 It's interesting yeah, it's actually because cool. that's um that's Rubin, isn't it? And um mm-hmm. I think Rick Rick Rubin has a I don't know what it is. He's got like a very hands-off approach to producing. Um but like how do you think he's managed to achieve this kind of status where everyone, you know, everyone loves him and everyone seems to make great records with him? Well, yeah, I mean, he's a really interesting thing. And he's, and like, he is the opposite of how I approach things. Um, but I still have tremendous respect for, for what he does and, and how he approaches them. And I think it really boils down to, to, to two things for him. Um, number one, he hires incredibly gifted engineers and mixers, you know, that help execute his vision. And number two, he really does bring a vision. And that guy knows songs. He knows when songs are right. He knows when they've been captured right. He knows when performances are right. And so he doesn't have to be in the room, you know? He basically creates the opportunity for the musician to do something amazing, but he is the one that gets to choose what, when it is actually amazing. And he's damn good at it. Yeah, because I think it was Corey uh, Taylor. Is that right, Corey from Slipknot? Um, uh, yeah, I'm not as familiar with. The, I mean, I know the band, but I don't know all the members' names. But yeah, uh, I'll, I'll get slaughtered if I got this wrong. But I think it was him who said he, he kind of want, wanted his money back from Rick Rubin because you know he said he turned <laughs> up three times during the whole session that was like months long. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. But it sounds like you're saying his, the whole a, a great deal of the art is just setting up the right environment and making the opportunity. Sure. Yeah, and he may be more hands-on for other things, but from what I've heard, he is very, very involved in choosing the songs that are going to be recorded and 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 deciding when they're really right and when they're done. That's 
that's kind of the hardest part, man. Really like knowing when something is actually done because yeah. anybody can throw up some mics and hit record and, and get to a place where it's like, okay, all the parts are there. Is this actually really good or not? You know, like yeah. that can be the hard part. And and he's really good at that, you know? I feel like um, we are as a, uh, just learning to trust our ears in this studio, in this business, me and Aaron in particular, because we're, we're quite young. As I'm not as young as I once was, who is? But, you know, um, I think you go through, we went through this phase, both of us, of um, uh, not, uh, we don't like what we're hearing, but we think, oh, well, maybe someone else will, which is a big mistake for the first thing. It's like, you have to right. be convinced by it. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the issue of, not knowing what to do if it doesn't sound right. And so just throwing plugins on stuff and just sweeping EQs around and things like that. You know, right. how do you, how do you, do you, do you train people ever? And, and, and if so, how do you get them to the point where it's knowing uh, what's right or knowing what to do when it's wrong? Yeah, I, you know, I've had a long history of um, having assistants, you know, come through my little world um, uh, at Barefoot Recording and and even places before that. Um, and you know, I'm I'm very proud of the fact that a lot of those folks have gone on to have really amazing, successful careers of their own, being producers or songwriters or engineers or mixers or and all of that stuff. And um, and you know, I think. There's, there's one part of it that I think is maybe can, can be learned, but a lot of it you're, you just carry with you, which is really what sort of your fundamental instincts are, like what, what music really speaks to you and that you really connect with and connect with in an emotional way. Because I think ultimately the emotional connection is the truest indicator when something is really working. You know, like you can get all the frequencies in the right place, but if it doesn't feel like something, then it doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and so th that's the thing, you know, that I, I sort of got in tune with for myself at a certain point where it's like, you know, I use a spectrum analyzer and I'll look at stuff and, you know, try and line up all the frequencies and I'll AB to other things and, you know, do all this stuff to try and, you know, navigate to a place. But there's a certain point in the process when I'm finishing a mix where I have to be able to just kind of turn up the speakers and sit back and just feel a musical experience that real that I connect with, you know, and it either happens or it doesn't, you know? Yeah. And like that, that's the part that I think, you know, people have to really trust in themselves uh, and really get tuned in with. And I was very fortunate, you know, that I, I started um, in the late eighties uh, with the band that I was playing with and then transitioned to doing other things, you know, all through the nineties and then late nineties was fortunate enough to meet up with some bands that became successful. And, um, and my instincts were translating to something that um, was the right time for what was going on in that time frame, you know, it's all changed now as it should, you know, music needs to evolve and things should change. And so my instincts are not really at the center of the bullseye of <laughs> what's happening right now. And, um, but for that era of time from, you know, all through the nineties and into the two thousands, you know, all I had to do is go in the studio and make something that I thought sounded cool and, you know, other people would like it. Record companies would like it. Record companies would pay me for it. Radio stations would play it. And it all just was super effortless for me, you know? 
That yeah, that you you've hit upon a really really interesting point there, which is to say that um, I've kind of straddled two different cultures. Um, when I was nineteen, I I started a band uh, and was so into just the whole culture. Like we we wanted to live like uh, Pixies, circa you know nineteen eighty six. You know we wanted that whole life. We wanted the being in a van. You know REM, IRS years experience, yeah. just driving around doing that whole thing. And this is like twenty fifteen. Blink and everything's hip hop and everything's electronic. Yeah. And it's that culture seems quite old now. What it, what do you do if the music that you've been gearing yourself up for suddenly becomes out of fashion? You know, I, I'm guessing from what you were saying that you wouldn't advise people to just immediately try and put on a new suit and pretend you're the new thing. I, I don't. I don't think that makes for you know, a fulfilling life, you know, and I've never personally, I, I never chased money that I'm not motivated by money. If you want to make a lot of money, then you got to make music that is right in the center of what's popular. So right now, if you really want to make a lot of money, you're going to make pop music, you better learn about hip hop and electronic, you know, music production. And you know, if you're really into it and you connect with it, you'll do great. That's great. Um, but you know, I did, I had an interesting transition. So when, you know, I started off playing in this sort of like prog rock band in the late eighties, this band called T-Ride. And then coming out of that, we toured and it wasn't as successful as everybody hoped. And, uh, and so then I sort of transitioned to, you know what, I, I, I prefer the studio. I'm just going to stick to doing studio stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, um, we had started with a, a client, you know, while we were, I always had, recording studios that I worked out that we built. Um, there was uh, the singer in the band, T-Ride and I were partnered together and, and uh, we built these recording studios. They sort of progressively got bigger and better as, yeah. as things went along. And, and, uh, and so once the band thing sort of wound down and I was just doing the studio, um, our best client at the time, this was in the early nineties, there was another round of this where um, rap music was massively popular. And we had this guy named Oscar Jackson, who was also known as, as Paris. He was, a you know, like a real sort of, uh, political, like, um, it was very similar to public enemy, that kind of a, you know, rap band. And, um, they call him the black Panther of hip hop. He was in Northern California. He was a very bright guy and, you know, had, uh, very sort of, um, you know, a lot of social commentary and sort of politically informed lyrics and stuff like that. He was a cool dude. Um, and so he was our best client. He was getting a lot of, a lot of traction and, uh, you know, a major label gave him an imprint and he was signing other arts and there was just a ton of, ton of work there. And so there was a period of time from like around 1993 to 1995, I did nothing but rap music. I just worked for Paris. That's all I did. And I was super grateful for it. It was, you know, amazing to have that like stable income at the time and be able to push things for us, paying off a bunch of debt that was left over from <laughs> the band that I played in. <laughs> and, um, uh, but there was a certain point, like in the, you know, around 95, when I realized like, I am never going to be better than Dr. Dre at this. That's not going to happen. You know, like when I leave the studio to go home, I don't listen to rap music. You know, I put Led Zeppelin on <laughs> for yeah. my drive home and into the studio. That's what speaks to my heart, you know. And I told Paris at a certain point, you know, like, you should be working with somebody that is 
100% invested in and passionate about rap music. Then you'll make the best work. You should be working with Dr. Dre. He was super talented, you know, like, I'm just not that guy, you know, like, I'm grateful to, for the work. And I think you're awesome. But like, if I'm really honest, like, I just I don't think you're, you know, I'm good enough. You know, you should be working with somebody that's more invested in this. And, and I should be working on rock music. You know, that's what I love. That's what I learned how to play. That's what speaks to me. And so I made that transition. I gave him time to be able to get situated with a new thing. It ultimately didn't work out great. He ended up trying to rob the studio and that was not awesome. But, um, but then I made that transition, which was tough. Like I was making no money for a period of time you know, very, very limited income and just like put an ad out in the local magazines. You know, there was a thing called Bay Area Music Magazine, you know, like studio time for rent, you know, I'll record anybody, you know, and just started working with bands again. And I was just so much more passionate about that. And it didn't take that long. And all of a sudden I sort of just happened to cross paths with a band called Third Eye Blind, made some demos with them. And I crossed paths with another band called Smash Mouth and I made some demos with them. And because I was so invested in, in that style of music and being able to capture the drums and mic drum kits and I loved doing that and guitar sound, like the whole thing was just so incredible to me and I loved every second of it. That was, I was doing the best work I could do doing that, even though I was living off of like microwave burritos that I was buying from a gas station around the corner, you know, yeah. I didn't care because I was doing what I really, really love to do. And I was doing work that I think was actually more important um, when I was doing that. And, um, and so then, you know, it didn't take that long for that to transition into those bands getting signed, them wanting to still work with me and carrying me across that that threshold from being just a guy that gets hired by the hour to a guy that has his name on multi-platinum albums, you know? Now that's really useful because one of my questions um, was going to be for the, you know, there's going to be a, hopefully uh, some younger people, some aspiring people watching this thinking, you know, seeing uh, you with albums under your belt that have sold and sold. And I, you know, for example, I heard no one knows every single time I went out when I was at uh, college. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> some people would be like, well, I, I, I'm at A, you're at B. How do I get there from A to B with, uh, you know, as in as painless a way as possible? And it sounds like part of your answer is you have to just stay the course. You have to do what you really believe in and yeah. not get too panicky about not having a, a mortgage straight away. Yeah. You know, I, I think there are different ways to do it. I, I know folks that have done the like the intern route, you know, where they start in a high profile studio where there's lots of high profile artists and high profile record makers in the building and you're assisting them. That can actually be a faster path um, to get there. And so in a matter of a few years, you can make that transition from being an assistant to than working with more high profile stuff. And you learn those techniques straight away. You get to see somebody at the top of their game making, you know, multi, you know, platinum records. I don't even, I guess, multi streamed records. I don't know yeah. what you call it anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, doing that. And so you learn that immediately. I took sort of a longer path um, where I was very self-taught. I never really interned in another studio super dedicated to it. And I, and it's just basically all I ever thought about or did for a long period of my life for decades. Um, you know, I started when I was a 
teenager, quite young. I got my first four track when I was like 13, 14 years old, you know, and just never stopped recording. And, yeah. um, and so it's a long path to get there. And I think it's a little riskier because depending, you know, where you are there, I think the two biggest factors that you have limited control over is your location, where you are and, and what time frame you're in. Timing is really important. And so if I started now today doing the kind of production that really speaks to my heart, I would never be making a multi-platinum record. It, does, it wouldn't happen. Like, yeah, so is, is, that, is, that, is that what you see happening from now on for, you know, say, say if we've got anyone who's like 21 years old and is like, I am longing for a return to, you know, the, uh, the days when a band like Nirvana would be the biggest thing on the planet. And that's the culture I want to live in. It, it sounds like you were saying you might have to hang up that dream and just do it any way you can. It's never going to be like that again. Yeah. You know, uh, and it shouldn't. What's and changed so to stop I, it from being like that again? Um, yeah, it just it it shouldn't be like that. You know, music is is a dynamic creative process, and it should always continue to reinvent and evolve yeah. uh, through time. I, yeah. You know, Led Zeppelin was an amazing band. I love them. I still listen to it every day. But it, that's been done. You know. Yeah. It's been done. We don't need to do that again. We don't have to. It's cool to be influenced by it. I am, um, you know, and and I still love listening to it. And it still brings me extraordinary joy when I listen to that music. But people, you know, we, I don't think music should still be trying to do that, you know, yeah. almost 60 years later or no, so 50 years, almost 50 years later, you know, uh, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And so, you know, the music that's being down, done now that's really successful doesn't speak to me personally, but it doesn't mean that it's any less important or valid or creative or any of those things. I think there's really amazing creative things going on in the music. It, it all sounds the same to me because I'm not invested in it. And I can't, I can't identify all the really cool, subtle differences between these tracks that makes one artist unique in one way versus another. Just like I think when a rap artist listens to rock music, it all sounds the same to him. It's all got drums and guitars and like, what's the, what's the big deal? You know, it's all the same crap, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I think you can still uh, um, have, uh, I think a really, really great life experience. Um, and I think a better life experience, if you're doing what you really love, if you if you really love Nirvana and you want to make that kind of music and you can make it in a way that's important and meaningful, then it will have value in the world. You won't make as much money doing that than if you did the latest Drake record, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's just the reality of it. But to me personally, again, like I'm, I was never motivated by money and I'd have been perfectly happy staying in my little hunk of shit studios. It was what it actually used to be called in Redwood City, making the music that I love. You know, I'd be totally happy doing that. And, so, uh, uh, Tell us about what happened when, when did things change for you? When did it become, when did it go from being in the hunk of shit studio to something a little bit grander and a bit more, uh, you know, a bit more mainstream, let's say? Yeah, for, for me, and I, and I know it's different for everybody. Um, for me, it was a very, very specific, um, very quick transition that happened. And so, um, uh, I had met both of those bands, Smash Mouth and Third Eye Blind, around the same time, and was doing demos for both of them. 
And they had kind of a different trajectory, uh, but they ended up in a, around being finished around the same time. So um, Third Eye Blind, I met, we made demos. They shopped demos and got a major label record deal with Elektra Records. And then the band asked me to stay on to co-produce the record with the, the lead singer, Stephen Jenkins. And so I engineered, mixed most of the record and then co-produced the record. And then Smash Mouth made demos but they didn't get a record deal. They shopped it around, they didn't get a record deal. And Smash Mouth started off as like a ska punk band. <laughs> Most people don't actually know that. <laughs> and um, even though 99% of their first record was all ska punk. <laughs> and, um, and so we did a bunch of demos, they didn't get signed. And then they came back to me and they said, hey, we just wanna make a record and put it out ourselves. And I said, no, okay, cool, let's do it. And so, you know, we just took the five or six songs we had already recorded, recorded another six songs, um, and then made, and then I mixed it all and made one record out of that. And so that record, the first Smash Mouth record, took two weeks to make, recorded and mixed. And um, one of the songs on that first record in the second batch of six songs was that song, Walking on the Sun. And so, we finished the record for Smash Mouth and, and I had finished um, the album. I've been working on the album with uh, Third Eye Blind all through 1996, through the second, like we started in the summer and that, that album took a long time. It took six months to make that record. Mm -hmm. And um, we worked on it on and off a little bit, but it, it was just a long process. And, um, and it was sort of intended to be that way. We recorded at multiple different studios and, you know, it, we had an, a big budget and we, we wanted to like spare no expense and just have this extravagant, we wanted to make a big unapologetic, you know, rock record. And, and so we did that, but it took a long time. So I finished mixing that record right in the end of 1996. And then for anybody who's been through the process, once you mix, once you finish mixing an album, it takes months for it to come out, you know? Right. So the, the record company gets it, you do artwork, you, you know, start setting up press, you know, there's this whole process where you set up the release of a record and it takes months. And depending on their release schedule with other artists, it can be pushed back even further. So, th so that album ended up not coming out until months later. And so the Smash Mouth record, I finished that record in April of 97. And um, we finished the record and we thought, okay, let's just, let's take it down to get mastered in LA. We took it to Bernie Grunman mastering in LA and we'll get it mastered. And we'll play it for, for some people and see if they can get signed. And so a couple of things happened. They started taking it to some record companies and, uh, the singer Smash Mouth was really good at networking. He made friends with all the, anybody that could help the band. And so he made friends with the guy that did production work at K-Rock. Mm -hmm. and uh, went over there and played it for this guy named Jim Pratt. And so he would do all the like cool sound effects in, in transitions and stuff and little bumper things and whatever. And, um, and Jim Pratt heard Walking on the Sun and said, hold on a second, I have to play this for the, the program director right now. <laughs> yeah. He walked into the next room. There's a guy named Kevin Weatherly. If you're if you know anything about alternative music in, in the United States, he like defined the program list for alternative music in the US. He was the guy. And uh, went in and played it for him. And Kevin Welly said, I want to start playing this tonight. Wow. It's like never happened before. 
And so, and then at the same time, they were taking it to record companies and every record company that they took it to was like, we want to sign this. And so Interscope was really, really aggressive. It's like, we're not going to let you leave. You have to sign with us. And so Interscope was insisting on signing the band. They actually had to tell Kevin Weatherly, please don't start playing the song yet. We're not ready. We don't even have an, like an album cover. Please wait, you know, let us get our shit together and then you'll, we'll give it to you first, you know? What's the worry? Is is it that it catches some attention and then fizzles out before release? Right. So, you know, yeah. So songs have sort of an arc, you know, of, of play on radio. So it'll build up and it'll peak and then it'll sort of taper off. And if you don't have records on the shelves when that song is getting played seven or eight times a day on the station, you, you can miss your opportunity um, back then when people bought records. <laughs> and so... Um, and so what ended up happening was the the song Walking on the Sun and Semi-Charmed Life ended up getting released to radio at the same time. And they both went to number one on alternative music at the same time and were competing for that that position against each other. And so I just just out of sheer luck, you know, of meeting those bands just sort of exploded into the popular music scene just out of nowhere. It was totally crazy. And so overnight, I went from being, you know, kind of a locally known dude that could record some stuff to a nationally known guy where every day, you know, for a while, I was getting calls from producer managers going like, hey, do you, uh, who are you working with? Can, you know, do you need a manager? You know, like it was totally surreal. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and like the reality is once that transition happens, um, this is one of those catch 22 things. It's like, yeah, once that happens, like pretty much from that point forward, every time my phone rings to work on a record is because my name is on a record. Right. And so it's getting that first record that is visible enough to bring that, you know, to start that momentum and, and get the, your phone to start ringing in that way. And, you know, and I'm just super grateful for all, for all of it. Once that momentum started, man, I just, I worked 16 hours a day, at least six days a week for 20 years. Wow. Know? And so uh, it follows the same distribution pattern as, you know, all creative success. It's like a lot of zero and then a hundred all of a sudden. And yeah. it can also, I mean, maybe in your experience, you can tell me if you've ever seen anyone do this. My suspicion having not yet had any of that kind of success, is that it can be easy to fall off it if you don't know how to manage it. Yeah, I think it can. Uh, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm trying to think about that. I, I, I mean, most of the people that I know, you know, that either came up through uh, my world and, and I, I watched them make that transition, um, yeah, I can I can think of a, a couple of examples of how it's gone right and how it's gone wrong. Uh, I'll, I'll leave names out of this. Uh, and so, you know, um, there was one gentleman that um, assisted me for a period of time and um, uh, was very ambitious, super talented and um, and and very business minded. And so he had like the perfect combination of qualities to really be able to capitalize on what I what I feel was really a gift. Like the guy is an amazing gifted songwriter. And uh, and so, 
you know, he made that transition. And even after working with me, it was a little bit of a slow climb for him, but he was very persistent and really believed in his musical sensibilities. And, and so it took another probably five years. And all of a sudden he was starting to work with more like high profile artists, people like pink and, um, you know, a bunch of Nashville artists, like he was doing both pop and country stuff. And he parlayed that into having his own record company and a management company and like, way more successful than I ever bid what was or would be or whatever, you know, like I just didn't have that kind of ambition. And sadly he, he, he passed away last year, but, um, way, way too young. But, um, but he, there was no question that he was, um, just going to continue to build. He was on the path to being a, an enormous music mogul, you know, in the music business. He just had all the qualities to do it. Um, there's another gentleman that's, um, uh, started off just, uh, assisting me. And then he's a great engineer and a mixer. And so he's continuing on, uh, and mixing for sort of higher and higher profile stuff and, um, and doing amazing. Uh, and I, and I think, one of the things that the uh, the example that didn't really go well, there was there was a guy that I know who's also an amazing engineer, started off working on some very high profile stuff, huge, huge multi-platinum records. And at a certain point, I don't even really know what motivated the, the choice to do this. But at a certain point, he fired his manager and thought, you're not really doing anything, you know, yeah. like I'm doing all the work. Like what, you know, why am I giving you all this money? This is stupid. And his career instantaneously went boop. <laughs> wow. Just from that one manager not generating opportunity. Yeah. And I, I think there are certainly good and bad ma managers out there in the world. You know, some maybe aren't really worth whatever they take, but um, the ones that are good are really worth it. You know, yeah. um, I had sort of a unique situation where I have um, a guy that is both my manager and a lawyer. He's my lawyer and manager, both um, really professionally as a lawyer, but he, he decided to manage me as well. I'm the only, only producer he's ever managed. And I'm, I'm a kind of a hands-off producer because, you know, I have my own studio that I work out of. All you have to do is just put a band in there with me. And I'm just very self-sufficient, you know, and some other producers, they need a lot of help, like finding a studio and putting the budget together and doing all this stuff. And, you know, th there's just very little work to do once there's a band that's going to come in and work with me. And, um, uh, and so, you know, my, my guy, Jeff light was, has been amazing for me, but, there's some real advantages to that. Uh, and f like for Jeff, the, the guy that's represented me in, in the time when this was possible, um, he would ask for fees for what I do that I, I could have just never asked for. Like I just, I just couldn't have ever conceived of asking for that much money. <laughs> you what, know? What, can, you, can you be sure, a more yeah, specific? He would ask for a half a million dollars for me to make a record. Wow. All in budget. You wow, know? I mean that's a fucking lot of money. <laughs> it's pretty huge. What do you yeah, reckon the What do you reckon the the rate is, or like the top rate is that a producer has been, you know, charging for making a record? Or maybe you know, you know, some really good examples. Yeah, I mean, I peaked out at, at half a million bucks. You know, like that's that when, good. when early two thousands, like that's where it was. You know, the yeah. the music business was still healthy. It hadn't really been well, you know, or healthy in a different way, and um. 
And, uh, you know, and so it was possible to do that. And, um, and I, you know, I got that consistently, you know, for, for a number of years and it wasn't until, uh, yeah, until we got into the 2010s when it really started to taper off, you know, and it was like the realities of streaming and the loss of revenue and stuff really started to trickle down to the, the folks that work in the studio. It's like, no, you're, you're, you're not going to get that anymore. Like there's just not em- enough money. You know? Should we, should we go a bit into that? I mean, you've had a career that straddled, let's say, what did you say? 1987, it started roughly 86. Yeah. Yeah. In late uh, 80. Yeah. And, and here we are 2021. Um, and if you time traveled from there to here, uh, it would be an alien world in the music industry. Um, yeah. What's going on? Are we are we going through a transition? Uh, because or or is this the end result? Uh, I mean, that's I can't actually predict the future, but there's this constant debate going around in this office because you know our, our founders are 55, we're all 28 to 22 roughly. The the, the rest of the team. So yeah. there's a there's 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 a debate that goes on saying this is wrong. How can we get Spotify to give more money to artists, and part of me thinks that might the problem might not be withholding money; it might just be the model itself. But tell tell me what you think. Yeah, there's a bunch of things. You know, I have a lot of feelings about that. Um, You know, we are the the significant part of the transition has happened. Basically, the trans the the main you know trigger of change was this issue of not really being able to own. You can't physically own. A recording of music anymore. We're going to segue on to something else there later, but yeah, go on. Yeah. Once it goes out there, everybody can have it. Generationless copies, it's out, you know? And so people can get it for free. And so that, that was the thing that triggered all of the change that we are now seeing the the, the results of that, you know, music really lost its value as a medium, you know? And, um, and so, uh, the Spotify thing, I think there's, there's a couple things about that model that really, really needs, um, to, to change. Um, there's a lot of chatter about it on the internet. I'm not the only person that's, that's waving this yep. flag, but, um, first of all, the reason that the deal is not good for artists with Spotify. Um, and I know this because, um, my lawyer manager, is a lawyer for Spotify. <laughs> and see, he was very much involved with all of the negotiations that happened with that company as it was starting. Um, and what happened was that Spotify, in order to have even the slightest possibility of being successful as a musical, a, a music delivery, you know, service, they, they're going to have to have all of the music that people like to listen to or the majority of the music that people like to listen to. If you can't offer that, who's going to pay a subscription for a service that doesn't have the music you listen to? Who owns all of the music that people listen to? The, the three or four major labels. So like Universal Music, the Sony Group, the Warner, Warner Group, and whatever, some, some other stuff. Um, and so Spotify had to strike a deal with those entities to be able to have access to their catalogs so they could be able to play all the music that people want. And the labels knew like your business doesn't work without our catalogs. And they just had Spotify over a barrel and just named their price. And so Spotify isn't getting a particularly great deal either because they had no leverage in the deal. 
you know, it's not like record companies needed Spotify, you know? And so the deal was not extraordinarily great for the record companies and atrociously bad for the artists. So, you know, because the artists weren't even a part of that negotiation. Can you elucidate for us a little bit of what an artist can expect from, you know, streaming? Uh, Can you survive on streaming? Um, man, the numbers have to be, uh, big, real big. Um, I, there's lots of information on this online. It's very easy to look up if, if you want to Google it. And I don't remember the number specifically, but unless you're getting hundreds of millions of, of streams on Spotify, I don't think it's something that you can really sort of like count on as, as making a living, you know? So you, an interesting question I've had for someone like you, who's seen both sides of it, who's been in the major success of the, let's say the, um, the old era, dare I say it. Uh, I had a suspicion that it was a similar distribution as in, you know, if you're one of the top 100 artists, you're making money. But it sounds as if there was once upon a time a way to at least subsist without being one of the top 100. You know, you can sell merch, you can sell your own LPs, you know, pressed at tremendous expense to yourself. But if you can make a bit of markup, you can perhaps live. But, Absolutely. Yeah. If you, if you sold a few hundred thousand records, you know, you, people would make money, you know, but not you, a few hundred million, like you're saying. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You can say sell, sell a few hundred thousand records and you don't have to be gold or platinum and the, the record company would make their money back, you know? So, so let's, let's look at this. It's like, um, let's see here. Let's do, let's do the math real quick, quick here. So, you know, records used to sell about 15 bucks a piece, right? And so let's say you sell 300,000 records, you know, so that's $4.5 million of gross income, you know, off of a record that just sold 300,000 copies and not even gold, you know? Yeah. And so from that, the record company would typically take um, 80%. So they've, they've made, you know, three and a half million dollars off that. That's, that's, that's a good business model. There's a huge portion of that that goes towards promoting it. So they'd probably spend half a million bucks promoting it or more, maybe a million bucks promoting it, tour support, other things like that. But still you're, you're making two or three million bucks off a of record that isn't even gold, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so the artist, they make their, let's see. So what was it? Four and a half million, something like that. Mm-hmm. So they got their, they get their 20%. That's a million bucks. Not bad. Not bad, you know, for, for an album. And that's not even gold, you know? And so uh, it was a totally different thing. And, and I'm, I'm going through an interesting thing right now. So, so you know, you go on an audio thing, you think you're going to talk about, you know, microphones and stuff. And we're, <laughs> we're all talking about finance, but hopefully people are interested in this. But um, I, there's a, an incredibly illuminating thing that's going on in my life right now. So I'm going through a, a big transition right now. So uh, I, I bought a building in the year 2000. Um, it, uh, you know, I turned it into barefoot recording. It's been my workspace for the last 20 years now, 21 years. And so I'm going to sell that building um, for a lot of reasons. You know, I'm going to move my whole thing to, to Vermont. Um, I found a property out in Vermont. That's amazing. It's exactly where I pictured myself being, you know, like in the second half of my life, you know, um, where I can be creative if I want to, or I can just hang out or whatever. It's just like this beautiful property. It's got its own river on it and a pond and a big field and hills. And, you know, uh, it's just an amazing old farm with this big barn that I'm going to turn into studio. So it's my dream. 
Um, and so I bought this, this building in, in Hollywood. It's right at Santa Monica and Vine in uh, the, the, the intersection of those two streets in Hollywood. Um, you know, very busy center of Hollywood t- type place. I bought that building in 2000 for $700,000. Wow. Okay. And, and at that time, making rock records, I was making almost a half a million bucks to make a record, wow. right? So all I had to do was make one or two records. I had more than enough money to buy that building. So now that building, if you do comps for the area, is worth $4 million, $4 million bucks. I'm trying to sell it right now. It's being a huge pain in my ass, but I'm working on it. Hmm. Um, and then if I was going to get hired to do a rock record now, me or any other, you know, rock guys, the budget for, to do a rock record is more like a $150,000, $200,000, something like that. for the whole record? For the whole record. Yeah. yeah. And there's a lot of guys that do it for way less than that. Well, I so imagine, they, yeah. It's steady work, you know? And yeah, cause I, you know, I would do all in budget. So a lot of guys that are just, you know, are just producing, um, you know, you'll get maybe 30, 40, 50 grand to be a producer. And then the rest of the budget goes to a recording studio, to an engineer, to the mastering guy, to whatever. Right. But all in budget, maybe 150, 200,000. And so, you know, my studio that I'm trying to sell is set up to record bands, to record rock music, to record that type of music. The, the producers, the artists, all the people that are involved in making that kind of music now have nowhere near the income to buy that building. Yeah. You know, not even close. <laughs> is, that, is that the pain in the ass that it's becoming? Yeah. Wow. It's and I imagine really so, crazy. sorry. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just one of these like tectonic changes in a whole industry and a genre in the industry. You know, here's, that- here's an interesting thing to me. What, what, I presume you worked on some uh, very some famous records in that place over the last year, uh, the last twenty mm-hmm. years. Yeah, um, is I'm I, one thing I find when I visited America is stuff gets torn down real quick. Stuff of historical significance. And I'm sure, guessing. Yeah. I'm guessing that in itself isn't enough to preserve the space because I'm guessing you'd have to, if you want to, you know, get someone to buy it. Because like you say, the people who need it, a purpose-built, properly, you know, built uh, sound place, can't afford it. Ergo, you'd have to sell it to someone who doesn't want it for that purpose. Yeah. It, Hollywood is not a particularly sentimental town. Um, and and the reality is like, you know, you can throw a stone and hit a building where fucking Frank Sinatra recorded and, you know, whoever else recorded, like it's everywhere there. So people are just kind of, you know, jaded to the whole thing. And the, you know, the building that I own, it was an amazing studio before I bought it. It was called Crystal Studios. And it was like Stevie Wonder's place for a while. He did songs for the key of life there. And it was like everything from Barbara Streisand to James Taylor to war to Jimi Hendrix to like on and on and on and on this amazing history. They had hundreds of number one singles out of there, blah, 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 blah. Nobody gives a shit. Wow. <laughs> they don't care at It's all. interesting actually, because that reminds me of when I was listening to the Russell Brand podcast, he was describing a time he was in the car with Tom Cruise and his whole family. And Tom Cruise was doing the help me help you scene from Jerry Maguire. And <laughs> Russell, Russell Brand says he looks around and is like, no one cares because they live with Tom Cruise. It's not interesting to them. Right. <laughs> right. 
So yes, you're saying that, that Hollywood has such an accumulation and a concentration of this magical success and wealth and just everything that is actually kind of boring. It's not unique to any one place in Hollywood. Yeah, it's certainly not. It doesn't have the same sort of special, you know, um, significance that it would in other places because it's it's just everywhere, you know. Yeah. So this is why some people are starting to move out of LA and move to different places like Austin, Texas or whatever. I mean, I'm mostly yeah. thinking of Joe Rogan when I say that, but you know. Yeah, no, it's very true. There's a lot of people that are leaving, you know. Um, I'm leaving, you know. Um, of course. Hollywood's an amazing place. There's incredible energy there. It was the perfect place for me to be when all I wanted to do was make records. You know, like that was just the fucking ground zero for me, you know, of where to be to make records. And I'm kind of retired at this point. I still do music and stuff, but I do it only when I just want to and feel like it. And, um, and I'm a new dad and I got a three-year-old son. And so, you know, my time is being sort of uh, divided differently now than it was before where there was no division. I, all I did was just music all the time. You yeah. know? It, was, it was great. And, and I did that, you know, but there's a certain point where it's like, you know, how boring would it be for me to just make a bunch more records for the rest of my life? Let's, let's try something else. Let's, let's make a kid. Let's make a human being. Let's try that, you know? Yeah. So, um, and so I, I need to always have that in my life. I think I would really go crazy if I didn't have access um, to a studio where I, I can go and be creative. Um, and the place that I'm going to build in Vermont is unquestionably going to be the most indulgent, extravagant home studio ever. <laughs> For sure. I mean, this yeah. is, uh, do you, do you, uh, what do you think of uh, Albini? I love his work. He, yeah, he's made some amazing records, and and I and I I really respect his approach. You know. Yeah. yeah I don't I, know. I, I don't know how he built that studio, considering his whole thing has been refusing to ever take points on a record. You know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, ethically opposed to it. Yeah, I'm. You know, he he's a hardworking dude. You know, he's done a lot of stuff, and and I think you can do it that way. And I, I you know, I, part of the beginning of this whole stream of consciousness is that is like, how does, if somebody really wants to, you know, um, invest their energy and, and creative spirit into making Nirvana type music now in 2021, I think you can do that and you still can make a living doing it. Um, it you won't, it won't be like, you know, mansions and Bentleys and stuff like that, but who, who fucking needs that? You know, like yeah. that's not, Anybody that thinks that that's really where happiness comes from, you got a lot of other shit to figure out first because yeah. that's not where happiness comes from. You know, happiness comes from the inside. It doesn't come from outside stuff. And yeah, it's like the, uh, the, the, the skyrocketing heights of like Jagger and Richards, uh, for example, from a financial or wealth perspective, are a side effect of how good they made people feel by obsessively pursuing that rock and roll music they loved. Yeah. There's a lot of really interesting stories about that, uh, this stuff too, you know, um, famous folks that, you know, were seeking fulfillment and happiness through success and validation externally. And when they got there and realized I'm still not actually really happy or fulfilled because they're trying to get it from the outside instead of finding it within themselves. That's when they really unravel. <laughs> There's yeah. a pretty famous story about uh, Richard Dreyfus, a uh, famous actor, um, when he finally won an Oscar. Uh, and he's like, okay, I've, 
I've finally done it. Like that was his big dream. When I win an Oscar, then I'll finally feel fulfilled and happy and validated in my life. And he realized he didn't. And he went on big like Bender and it totally unraveled, you know, because it wasn't the answer. And, and it never is, you know, happiness doesn't come from shit like that. Well, know? moments like that are often like the, 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 the end of the story, aren't they? And then it's like, it's the end of one story. Suddenly yeah. you need a new one. Yeah, yeah. Is yeah, that what it's I, like I, when you fit? Sorry, sorry, go on. I've seen that as well, where it, there's something very exciting about the potential of something. I've seen a lot of artists that have this extraordinary potential, but it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> and everybody's like, it's going to be this, it's going to be that, they're going to be so huge, it's going to be blah, 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 blah. And everybody has this vision in their mind of all this amazing stuff that's going to happen. And sometimes it gets so overwhelming that the the artist doesn't want to actually step take the next step they yeah. want to live in the potential yeah. because once they take that next step then the question gets answered like is that actually really going to happen or not they don't want the answer they want yeah. to live in the idea that it's going to happen you know i mean this is exactly like i, I one of the reasons i'm laughing is because when we were in our band you know it's coming up on 10 years ago now it's like every band every band uh, you know, sits in the car or the van or wherever and does what John and Paul did and said, where are we going? Top of the pops, top of most of the pop of most. It's like, you just psych yourself up every day. It's going to be so massive. And, you know, yeah. our singer Dixon, I mean, he's just going to laugh at the, the fact that we used to just sit in his car till three in the morning sometimes after rehearsal and just being like dreaming of how amazing it was going to be when we were yeah, yeah. huge. <laughs> and you must have seen so many people do that. Yeah, there's a lot of it. And, so, you know, some people, uh, you know, are have the sort of the, the strength and and are brave enough to actually put it to the test and, and and let that question be answered you know the band i was in um the band t-ride like we were at least brave enough to to make that leap you know and go let's let's really do it we believe in this we think it's going to be the biggest thing ever let's step out there and put it to the test it wasn't what we what we expected the timing wasn't right we were a little too late with our thing and and so it didn't happen that way you know but like and, and, and that, that was actually a difficult transition for me. I mean, my whole world was ending. I joined that yeah. band when I was 16 years old, you know, and it was like my whole world, everything I'd worked for in my life collapsed when that band. Did you have that soul searching kind of pain? Like if it's not oh, this, yeah. it can't be anything. Yeah. And, um, but you know, you turn, as long as you continue to approach your life, regardless of the circumstances with this, you know, positivity of, I'm st I can still move forward from wherever I'm at. There's always an opportunity to take a step up from wherever you are. You will, things will get better. You know, it doesn't really matter what's happened. What matters is what, what you're doing now and where you're headed now, you know? And um, I feel like Toby McGuire now. Um, and so like, um, and so, you know, and for me, that band falling apart was almost could have been the best thing for me because, um, it created the opportunity for me to focus on being a record maker. And, and, you know, that's ultimately really what I, you know, feel like I, sh I should have been doing, you know? Yeah. I, I can already see, uh, looking at the time that, uh, this could have, you know, if we, if we were doing this for real in the studio, this could easily go on for three hours. Cause there's just so much to talk about, just so much to ask. Um, and you know, for that reason, I hope, uh, in the future, after some period of time, we can do this again. Um, sure, we can, do, got, we can do a part two. We'll do a part two, but we've got, I've got some burning questions written down that me and Aaron wrote down before. 
And because, okay. I mean, generally, like, I think, you know, I take, I take my inspiration for these things from Joe Rogan, which is why it tends to just wander and go in a direction you don't expect. Because, you know, you put your stuff on YouTube all the time. We can see your Pro Tool sessions. I'm not going to get more out of you than you will from doing the work. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> I've already saturated that. <laughs> well, you know, it's just like, you know what I need to know better than I do by asking, I suppose. I mean, one, one of my burning questions was just how the hell you turn a speaker into a microphone, for example. Oh, yeah. It's super easy. You just connect a wire to, you know, uh, a speaker has a positive and negative uh, leads on it, right? And just connect that to pins two and three on um, an XLR jack, plug it into, you know, your, uh, your microphone preamp, you're good to go. It's that simple. It's that simple. It really Amazing. is. And so, I mean, here, here's, here's the caveat. So now most speakers that are out there are powered. Doesn't work with powered speakers, right? You have to uh, actually connect it to the actual speaker itself, the passive speaker component itself. Um, and uh, there can be some, you know, impedance and loading issues depending on the impedance of the speaker and stuff like that. But most of most of the time, it all works out, and you're going for something that's weird anyway. So you know, you just yeah. you just hook up the wire to it and plug it in and see what you get. I've done it with a lot of different speakers. You know, every it started with the NS10 speaker, but um, ultimately I was like. Hey, that sounds cool. Why don't I try this fucking monitor wedge? It was a yeah. you know, it was a passive speaker, had a big 12-inch speaker in it. Let me try that. And so plugged a cable into that. Wow, that sounds cool. That ended up being the speaker microphone on the kick drum for all of the Queens of the Stone Age record. It was wow. a monitor. Yeah. Let's let's do, sorry, go on. You've got more. And then I did it with uh, I thought, wow, you know, big speaker, get lots of low end. And so I did it with an Ampeg B15. 15 inch speaker and use that as a microphone for kick drums. That sounds cool too. So, yeah. and then also on the Queens of the Stone Age record, I went to Radio Shack. I don't know if you're familiar with Radio Shack out in, uh, in the UK. It's just like a cheapy consumer electronics store where you'd get like the cheapest, crappiest electronic stuff. And, um, and they had just little shitty speakers that you'd put in your car or something. I bought a little speaker that was about that big, maybe about three inches in diameter and hooked a wire up to that, plugged it in. It was amazing on snare drums. And wow. so that sort of like barky mid range that you hear on the Queens of the Stone Age record, it's that little speaker on a, on a snare drum. That's a good question. So for, for, for young uh, engineers starting out, for example, because I've seen a little bit of uh, a session I'm going to ask you about in a moment where I, uh, not too long ago, about an hour and a half, two hours ago, saw you uh, soloing that channel, uh, mm. that exact one for this tiny crappy mic that's on the snare. I think it's on the snare. Uh, yeah. Sorry, on this session. And um, if I was, if this was me three years ago, I'd hear that and it's kind of a dissatisfying sound on its own because, you know, it's just a texture. It's a flavor. It's a spice. It's not the main right. dish. But then I'd be like, I need to turn it up until I can really obviously hear it. Like, how do you get over that impulse to just relax and just let it sit in there, just flavoring the sound somewhat? Yeah, it, for me, like, um, I definitely am hearing a, 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 you know, there's a finished snare drum sound that I'm, I'm trying to get, you know? And there are, there are these different components of that sound. There's sort of like the airy top end that sometimes comes from, you know, the room sound that's maybe bleeding into the microphone from around it and a little bit of the, you know, the sizzle from the bottom of the drum, the, the snares on the bottom of the drum, that sort of airy top end. And then 
there's a more aggressive, bright attack to it. Um, then there's the sort of like mid-rangey bark to this to the snare and then there's the low fundamental tone that has all the weight that sort of supports the rest of it so it's not just this like piercing you know brash sound you know and so there was a certain point where i just started breaking it up into that spectrum of different components and so i would use different sources to get those different aspects of the sound and so i could just blend them together until it all added up to the complete thing that i wanted and sometimes there are huge advantages to it so you know the brighter part of it i could use a faster compression time you know faster attack on the compressor so it wasn't so abrasive it was bright but it didn't like stab me in the ear hole you yeah know? yeah and use a slower attack time for the lower stuff so it had a, a harder transient and let more of the impact come through from the lower stuff. Um, and so it just feels powerful when it comes, it has an impact to it that is not piercing, but it has a it has a thunk to it, you know? That's interesting actually. So it sounds like your you know snare is made of these constituent elements and you actually are you're not just busting them all to one thing and and uh, treating the bus. It's like your every every little mic, every element, you've got different uh, ideas for attack release. Processed differently. It's ultimately blended in with the rest of the drum mics and then often, especially for aggressive rock stuff, then the whole drum kit would get compressed. And so those individual elements would get compressed together in the, in the overall drum mix. Um, but yeah, I, I think being able to compress things differently, um, you know, is really, really useful. And now there's multiband compressors that do it really well, you know, so you can do it more with just one, one source and you can do that. I also like incorporating distortion more in the mid range and high frequencies again, because it, it allows you to have more presence, a brighter sound without having this, this really abrasive transient impact in there, you know? Yeah, I know what you mean. It sounds like the kind of, um, uh, we've, I've, we've only just got our first, genuine uh you know focus right preamp analog uh we were just going straight into the box before cool. and uh we had a condenser in studio two the door slammed and my gain was too hot and it just went God, really satisfying kind of yeah. thud with like crunch but it wasn't harsh and hissy i was like how the hell did it do that but that must be that analog distortion sound yes distortion is is incredible yeah. <laughs> it's so good for music <laughs> and a world unto itself is not just one sound yeah 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 so, um, well, that's good. I um, was alluding to before with the, the session I was watching is that, you know, I've seen your, uh, you know, mix breakdowns on YouTube where you look at these different sessions and stuff. No one knows has been taken down, but it still does the rounds on, on Reddit. Do you know why it's been taken down or why it's gone? I mean, it's your content. Sure, yeah. Josh do doesn't want his stuff out there. Wow, why not? You know, he um, he's always been more secretive about what they do. And he... There, there was definitely an era, you know, in the 60s and 70s, like bands that I was into, like Led Zeppelin, there was a lot of mystique about those bands, like, those records sound otherworldly. And there was a lot of like, how is this happening? Like, I have no idea, you know, how any of this was created. And, and I think Josh really values that for his band. And, and I, I respect that. You Not know? showing behind the wizard's curtain kind of thing. No, and I think he loves the mystique. And yeah. and it's it's his band, so he should be able to do it the way he wants. Okay, this is because you know, obviously, well, like we say, for most people, uh, no one knows is like the most popular track. Certainly, people my age group, you know, everyone knows it, even if they don't know that they know it. 
Sure. Too, too many no's in this sentence already. And um, uh, I feel like I'm listening to that. I'm like, those drums have got to be in a tiny room. But then if I set my drums up in a tiny room, it's like the snare makes no noise whatsoever. How have they done this? That's the kind of mystique you're talking about, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, for that one, it was, it, there's an interesting sort of, you know, uh, paradox there because, you know, Josh always has been and, and is still in a place where he's very protective over all of that stuff and wants to maintain the mystique for his band. I totally respect that. I, I'm in a very different place with what I'm doing. I'm at a place where I'm excited about sharing all this information with people. I've really enjoyed doing it. I just put it up on YouTube. You know, I asked for, at a certain point, I started asking for donations if people want to, but they don't have to. And I don't really care. I'm doing it because I'm having fun. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I do feel a, a certain part of, I feel a certain ownership over what I contribute to, contributed to that record. And, you know, I, I recorded all of that shit, you know? And so I did really want to share that. And I felt like this was my part of it that I can share. Um, but ultimately that's not the way it works. So yeah. <laughs> he had to take it down. So. Um, that's interesting actually, because that speaks to the, uh, you know, producer as artist or as at least, you know, part of the artist ensemble, which I imagine was part and parcel of the old era, right? Because I hate to say old, but you know what I mean? Um, where, so I'm a, you know, you're a band, it's 1980, whatever, you rehearse a bunch, you know how you want your record to sound, never been in a studio before and don't know how to manipulate the studio to get what you want out of it. Is that, was that originally the role of the producer? It's like, I know how studios work, tell me what you want, I can make it happen. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, bands uh, traditionally were good at playing music, but like recording studios in the 50s and 60s were like, you know, a world of technical wizardry that, you know, like there wasn't, you couldn't just go to Guitar Center and buy recording equipment. Mm -hmm. Most of the studios made their own equipment from scratch, you yeah. know, like EMI, you know, Abbey Road Studios, they made their own equipment. Oh yeah, all that legendary <laughs> so, stuff that now waves are going and trying to get the sound out. Yeah, with. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, to, to really have, and, and there's a lot of examples of that. Um, in the United States, in the UK, all over the world in that era, because it really just wasn't this ubiquitous thing where it's just available to everybody. And so it would be extremely unlikely that a band would show up with any knowledge or experience at all about how any of that works. And yeah. so it really started in that realm. And, you know, uh, if anybody that's really read the history of the Beatles, like, there is a separate entrance for the band to the studio than the people in the control room, you know? And like in Abbey Road, the control room was like up the stairs and you look through this big window down at the band, you know? Yeah, and like, yeah. Go in there. You never even go in the control room. Like, yeah, so for the benefit the of the audience who haven't been there, Studio 2 Abbey Road, I think it is, is that the huge one yeah. where, so your control room is all the way up in the corner, there's a little window and you feel like being watched yeah. by a kind of focus group testing yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was just, it was just such a different context back then. And, and that carried over for a long time. And actually the Beatles were really a part of that transition. There was a certain point where they were like, no, we we're going up there. We, we got ideas too. And we want to do stuff, you know, and they really changed that whole paradigm. Um, and presumably helps that they had kind of George Martin to help them through that. And they had the, the success behind them to be able to make those demands and right. say, 
you know, we just sold a shit ton of records, so we get to come in the control room now. Yeah, yeah. The <laughs> engineers know, like, at Abbey Road aren't going to tell them no. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, so they helped sort of spearhead that whole thing. And it's really cool now that, like, you know, people can do, literally with just a laptop, you've got a whole recording studio now. And you're yeah. really only limited by your own creativity. And back then, you know, it was... Uh, it was very different. There were very real limits to it. You know, yeah. I mean, when I started out, the stuff that you could, that was easily available and affordable was a cassette four track recorder, you know, yeah. and there's definitely a limit to what you can capture on a cassette four track recorder. You know, this yeah. is not going to sound like a Def Leppard record. That's not yeah. going to happen. <laughs> you know, it's not going to sound like, you know, pyromania. There's no way. <laughs> yeah, so much. It's like 1978. It's like, there's no way you're going to get, you know, a uh, Neumann, uh, you know, U49. You're never going to get good preamps. You're never going to, you know, the whole desk, all the things you need to get the clean, silent kind of electronics or as quiet as you can get them. Yeah, there, there was very real technical limitations. And so, you know, so it started out that way. And then there was a whole spectrum of, of how people approached it. You know, there were... Um, there were, you know, one of the first producers that became more of an artist himself as a producer was Phil Spector, right. where, you know, he was writing the songs and defining the sound and creating artists. You know, yes. he would find somebody that had a voice and like, you're going to play this song and sing this way and it's going to sound like this and making all of that stuff happen. He was the artist. He was like the first time the producer was more akin to a film director where, you know, you know you're listening to Phil Spector when you hear it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So having the one on the uh, inside the control room be the artist was was not really heard of before that. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, you know, there's the other end of the spectrum, which is like Steve Albini, you know, who's like, I'm here to record stuff, you know, and I, I know how to capture amazing sounds. You are the band and yeah. you be your band, you know? Yeah. And that's been more his approach where he really wants to protect protect and preserve the essence of what a band is, you know? Yeah. So it's cool. So there's um like, I've probably got hopefully time for one or two more questions. And I'm just going to, my eyesight's bad these days. So I'm going to cut out this bit from the interview where I hold the laptop close to my face. Okay. Many, <laughs> of this, many of these things we've, we've actually addressed already. Um, it's very unprofessional of me. I apologize. It doesn't normally happen. All good. All good. I'm, uh, I have uh, named myself the worst YouTube host on YouTube for my shows because I'm terribly unprofessional on mine. Yeah. Um, I, well, I wasn't saying yes as in I agree. Uh, I think it gets probably... You can, you can agree. I think it's true. No, it probably gets worse. But um, here's an interesting thing. Have you seen any of the stuff from House of Kush? I have, yeah. I, I think he's he's doing great stuff. Like Greg something Greg or Scott. Other. Yeah. Yeah, Greg Scott. Um he's good. He makes great plugins. So his AR1, which is like an emulation of a very new compressor, sort of like uh, the the Altec um modified Altec type compressor is really good. I love that thing. I use it all the time. I just recently got his new um thing, uh Silica. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is like a combination compressor and distortion thing, which is right up my alley. Like to me, compression and distortion should always go together. You know, why is and, that? What's what, what's going on there? Um, well, it's because uh, both 
compression and distortion are both ways to manipulate dynamics, right? And there was a there was a you know a drive for a long time for people to try and get compressors to be cleaner and cleaner and cleaner and cleaner because where they started out was incredibly you know colored sounding. A lot of distortion was in early compressors, and they wanted to figure out how to get it out. And once they did, everybody realized oh no, we should have that back. And then you have things like the Distressor was one of the first ones that actually had dis a distortion button on it, you know? Yeah. And sort of began the era of like, wait a minute, distortion was good. Let's let's bring that back in. And, um, and so it, there are two different ways to manipulate dynamics. Um, and so distortion, at the end of the day, what it's doing is taking the loudest parts of a signal and instead of just turning them down, which is what a compressor does, it converts them into overtone frequencies. Yeah. And so it gets translated into this harmonic series of, of higher frequencies. So that volume gets put into higher frequencies. It whereas, pushes it like horizontally instead of vertically up. Yeah, so instead of just turning the waveform down, it actually, you know, ends up starting to square off the peak of, yeah. of, of a waveform. And then all of a sudden you have these new overtones that are, that are created. Um, and so, you know, for me, when, if you just take a signal and just turn it down, it, it, it really, it sounds like what's literally happening where somebody's getting yanked away from the speaker, you know? Yeah. Um, and there are times where I think, you know, that, that is useful, but it's, it's much less common for me than the, the translation of, of frequencies, you know? And so when you incorporate distortion, the apparent volume stays more consistent because even though that particular frequency is being re reduced in amplitude, it's being replaced by other frequencies, overtone frequencies that relate to it, that maintain an apparent, apparent volume. And that's why like an 1176 compressor, when you really mash a vocal through that thing, the vocal sounds like it's one millimeter from your face. You yeah. know, an incredible effect. It's so good. Have you and got some uh, records you've done that on that we can then, you know, the, the viewers can then go and listen to so they know exactly what you're referring to? All of them. <laughs> All of your records is 1176. <laughs> I, have, I have this one particular blackface, you know, um, 1176. It's um, for anybody that really geeks out about them. It's a uh, Rev D blackface 1176. So it's an original one. Um, or, or, you know, one of the, the vintage ones. It's probably from the early 70s. And um, it, that particular one is especially good for vocals. Um, and so... I mean, it's on all of those, all of those records, um, especially when I got into the 2000s, if there's really aggressive vocal stuff going on. Um, I'm trying to think of a good example um, of, of one of those types. Of, well, certainly all the Taking Back Sunday stuff um, has it all over it. Um, the Good Charlotte stuff does. Um uh, definitely tracked um, the Queens of the Stone Age stuff um, with it. Um, and then there's one really interesting example, which is a, a little um, less obvious. Uh, I made a record with this band, Nickel Creek. They're, they're a bluegrass band. And there was one song um, where we were, we were just having trouble 
getting an inspired vocal performance. Uh, I'll never forget this because it was it was so immediate. And um, and so Chris Thiele, he plays mandolin in the band, is one of the lead singers in the band. Um, he was trying to sing this the lead vocal to the song Can't Complain, and it just wasn't like it, he, there was something about it that wasn't feel feeling inspiring for him. And um, I had him singing through um, on this song. What was it? I think it was my 251. So it was an Elam 251, um, probably uh, a Neve uh, preamp and, uh, and the 1176. And so after a few takes, um, he starts off the song singing really, really quiet. And, and, and I decided like, okay, let's just, I want to make this so, you know, you don't, you can sing as quiet as you want and you'll never lose your own voice. And so I just cranked the input on the 1176. So even though he's, he's singing quietly, it was just like 10, 15 dB of, of compression. And it literally like reached down his throat and pulled his voice out. It was just amazing, the result. And all of a sudden he could sing because his voice was just right there in his ears, so close up that every subtle little detail when he was trying to sing really soft was just inescapable. And it, it, it not only made the sound, it made the performance. See, I, I love that because that, well, I, that answers, you know, uh, a couple of our questions from earlier as well, because we're talking about the producer as artist, having to have a good artistic intuition. I know what you want. I can see what you're trying to get out and I know how to achieve it with the tools. Not only that, but also trust in the ears, because you say you're watching the, the you know, the game reduction meter on the 1176 and it's going, wow, wow. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm quite a nervous person by temperament. So I watch that and I go, ooh, that's wrong. That's way too much activity. And I'm not listening and go, wait, right. does it sound right? Right. And that's a little bit of a dangerous game to play because you cannot undo compression. That's, 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 there's no undo button there. You make a bad EQ move, you can kind of, you could probably, you know, carve your way out of it. But when you, when something's over compressed, there's no undoing that. So well, what, what do you mean by this? Because obviously I'm thinking in a digital paradigm, I could just turn the plugin off. But do you mean once you've baked the mix, once it's cooked? I'm saying, yeah, so, you or know. Tracking compression. Yeah, so when when that vocal was being recorded, that compressor was on the signal being recorded onto the tape machine. That okay. project was all recorded to tape. So, yeah. yeah, and so yeah, so if you put it on there bef before it goes into your computer, you can't take it off. You know. Yeah, is that what you do? Do you do uh, tape and then into Pro Tools? I do. Yeah, I have this setup where I have a bunch of preamps coming in, and they they normal to directly to the inputs of my uh, converters, my ADD converters. And then I can also jumper them. So they, they get molted and go to a tape machine with equalizers and compressors and all of that stuff. And so I capture two versions of it in my computer. There's the, the, the just clean preamps. And then there's the, what I consider to be sort of like the, the finished premixed version, which goes through EQ compression and a tape machine and then it gets captured in. And so, um, the cool thing about this, this new process for me, I've been doing it for, uh, I don't know, since uh, last five or six years, something like, like that. Um, the way my, my stuff is set up is I can capture in the raw preamps and then 
have those, the raw mic preamps send back out and go through that chain of the EQ compression and tape machine and then monitor the, that back so I can get all my settings while I'm playing back something that I recorded. And so people don't have to be in the room just out there, you know, playing the drums for everyone, EQing and geeking yeah. out on stuff, you know. And, um, and so then once I get those settings, I switch it over. So now the preamps are going directly to all of that stuff. And, uh, and it all gets captured, you know, in there. Brilliant. I've, I've got two more technical questions, then I'll let you go, because uh, sure. you've got a bit building to sell. So I do. Um, and the questions I'm going to ask are basically to solve disputes within our business. So, um, because, you know, you have to get uh, purchases signed off. And often when, you know, you're uh, confronting your uh, higher ups and saying, we need to spend this money, they're saying, why? What does it do if we spend that money? You know, uh, I, we've got, at the moment, Genelec 1070s. Do you know the ones I mean? I believe so, yeah. I don't, I don't know that specific model number, but I know Genelec speakers, yeah. They've got, uh, you know, they're kind of nice and... Hang on a minute. Nice and, nice and flattering, kind of, you know, good for producing sound. Sure, yeah. Kind yeah of Genelec are fun to listen to, yeah. Right, that, and that's what I was worried about. They're quite flattering to the sound. Mm -hmm. I, I want a pair of NS10s. What's good about NS10s? Oh boy. <laughs> um, we don't have time I mean, for this. do work. Uh, I spent a long time trying to get away from them. Um, I, I would not recommend going down that, that rabbit hole. Um, Why is that? Because they are limiting at a certain point, you know, and, uh, and a, a lot of the stuff that, you know, of mine that people may be excited about, you know, was done with NS10s. Um, and, uh, and there is a thing about them that really works. You know, it definitely makes you work hard. They're, they're very mid-rangey sounding speakers. And so it will compel you to, you know, put a big smiley face on everything, add a lot of extra low end and add a lot of, you know, extra high end and stuff. And, um, you know, I think there was a time where that, that made sense and it really, really worked for a long time, but you know, the low end of modern records is very, very different now. I, I don't know that you could use NS10s without a sub for sure, because they start to roll off at about 80 hertz. Yeah. That's all you get. You know? And just purely inaudible at like 40. Nothing there. Zero. Yeah. 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 So, you know, so in that aspect, again, it worked better, you know, in a time where people weren't fucking around with 40 hertz, you know, yeah. <laughs> and now yeah. it's like, you know, driving it's all the there. Yeah. yeah. And so um, it would be tough to use NS10s by themselves. Um, but I'd probably have them as a pair of B monitors, you know, my B, my B speakers. Yeah. I think, um, you know, I, I had that for a while as well. But if you have a pair of monitor speakers that are really more flat all the way across and you switch to the NS10s and your mix all of a sudden sounds like this, it's not really that helpful. You're it's just going to so remix the whole thing. Yeah, it's such a different perspective that it's. I, I think it's kind of disorienting. People still like them. I'm sure people are still getting good results out of them. I'm. I'm not saying it's impossible, but um, I spent a long time. You know, I got sort of stuck with them using these NS10s and these Yuri 813 um, large format monitors. They have two 15 low frequency drivers and a horn, and um, and that was that's what I used for a long time. They're great um, up to a point. And there's a certain point where there's just amount of distortion and there's inaccuracies in the in the frequency response that become limiting. 
And I got as far as I could with those. And then there was sort of like a, a ceiling where like I, there, there's a level of detail that I just cannot get from these speakers. I'm, so I'm if, we could only, if we could only afford like one pair of near fields, if you've got like a starting out producer, what would you say? Like these are, the, these are your best bet. Um, man, that's tough. Uh, because the ones that I use are stupid expensive. And I, you know, like <laughs> I, I don't want to. <laughs> no, just, I can guess. I can guess. Um, really, you know, um, elitist, you know, you have to have these, um, but it's like love- Han, Han Zimmer speakers are like 30 grand, I think. So, yeah, yeah. Um, the, uh, so the ones that, that I use, um, are made by this amazing, brilliant guy named Jürgen Strauss. I stumbled onto them when I went to Switzerland to install an undertone audio console in a recording school in Switzerland. And, um, you know, I just, I heard the speakers and I was like, Whoa, I was actually uh, in the midst of mastering a record at the time and listened to this stuff. And I was like, this is what I want things to sound like all the time. <laughs> this is really what it should be, you know? Yeah. And he just hears things exactly the way I want to hear my music. And um, and they're they're brilliant. They're, they're passive monitors. So you just, you have to have a power amp. There's no adjusting them. There's none of that. And he just took the time to set up the passive components properly. So everything just feels effortless and accurate and musical. I just, man, I love them so much. Um, so they're, they're called Strauss Electroacoustic. I can't recommend them enough. They're actually more accessible in Europe than they are in the States because he's in Switzerland. Um, so he has these small ones, the NF3s. Um, they go down to about 50 hertz and they just sound amazing. And they're really what I always wish NS10s actually sounded like because they have that passive speaker thing where they, they're not hypey, you know, and so it's not like what you're describing with the, the Genelex where they're really fun to listen to. And there's, I had that experience with Genelex where you're mixing along and you're just thinking like, man, I'm fucking awesome at this. <laughs> and then you go and listen to it on something else and you're like, hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Always. And, you know, like that's that's just what it was for me. And I know a lot of people get great stuff out of Channel X. They, they work awesome. People love them. That's that's great. Boy, did they not work for me. Um, they I just felt like they were lying to me the whole time. You yes. Know? Yes. That's exactly what I get. And that's why I'm looking for a good pair of, you know, more yeah. representative near, near fields. But uh, so, so the other thing that I would recommend uh, when I needed just a, a quick like you know, more affordable pair of speakers to throw up in a little temporary setup that I have in Vermont. I got the, um, the Atom T8Vs. It's their cheap line of speakers. It uses their same cool, like whatever that ribbon tweeter is that they use. And, you know, they just use slightly less expensive materials to build it. They're unbelievably affordable. I think a pair of them is like seven or 800 bucks. They go down to like 35 Hertz or something. So there's plenty of low frequency information there and um, they've been great, you know? Well, that's, that's really, really useful. And, uh, you know, of course, super generous of you to just dole out info like this. And then, you know, the, the second dispute I need you to settle for me at work. Because, you know, I've got my IFD saying, why do we need to pay for acoustic treatment in the mix room? And right. why <laughs> why should I explain it? I'll just get an engineer who, you know, used to make half a million dollars a record. Um, yeah, because we've got, you know, a window there, window there. So when I clap, I get flutter and I'm trying to oh, mix boy. in this room. Yeah. Yeah. No, people, this is the most overlooked thing, I think, in engineering and mixing that... 
Um, you could have a pair of Hans Zimmer $30,000 speakers. And if, if you have them in a room that is not treated properly, they're worth exactly $0. They're worth nothing because the room has more influence over how those speakers sound than the, than the design of the speakers themselves. And that's why I'm, I'm fine using a pair of, you know, $700 for a pair Adam speakers in my little sort of setup, temporary setup, um, because I know how to treat the room right. And, you know, room treatment is, is not super easy. You, you, you kind of have to really commit to it. Uh, the toughest thing to do is to fix the low end. And that's the part that is the most influenced by the room and the most difficult to manage in the room. And um, I'm going through this now because I'm designing and building a new studio in Vermont. And I went through a whole journey um, with it when uh, with the control room at Barefoot Studios, because that room was not designed great and was not treated great. And I had to figure it out myself. Um, I think uh, I, I highly recommend um, for treating low end in spaces like that. Um, tube traps are a very... Um, quick and easy way to do broadband low frequency absorption absorption in a room. There are people on the internet that sell panels that are supposed to be low frequency absorbers. They're not. Um, you know, there's a rule of thumb that for the type of material that people use for treating um, acoustics in a room, like if you're using this, um, you know, uh, mineral wools type stuff, rock wool or something on the wall that you need um, a quarter of the length of the waveform in order to be able to absorb it with that material. So, so a 60 hertz waveform is probably about 16, 17 feet long. Wow. <laughs> so you need a quarter of that length of that material to actually absorb that frequency. So just a That's four right. foot panel. Four foot deep yep. against the wall. Nobody's going to do that. And nobody really tells you that. They sell panels that are four inches deep and go, this is a low a base trap. It's or not. Or a seven inch, the max, you know, it's like, well, this is a super base trap. Yeah, it's not. It so what do work. we do? What, 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 you know, people like us. Um, well, uh, the most efficient that I found that that is more obtainable is... Um, uh, is tube traps. So you can get a tube trap and put it in the corner where all the low frequencies are concentrated. That's, you know, anywhere from 12 to 14 inches in diameter, and you'll absorb a good amount of low frequencies in the room. And, you know, I tune rooms with a sine wave sweep and a microphone. And so I can see all the detail of what's going on in the low end. And it can be insane what's happening to your low end in your listening position where from one peak to another peak is literally like 20 db yeah. one frequency 20 db louder than another frequency how the yeah. fuck are you going to figure out your mix with shit like that going on you know yeah we did the uh huge sorry. problem and and so when you put tube traps in the corners in your room you'll literally watch those peaks just go boop get closer to each other you know, because that energy in the room that is reflecting back into the sound that's coming out of the speaker and out of phase and causing peaks and cancellations, it just gets reduced the more absorption you have in the room. So my approach to a room is I like to be anechoic in the low frequencies, basically no reflections as much as possible. It's very difficult to do because presumably you need a hard floor to sit and walk on, you know, so you can't put four feet of anything on there, you know. 
Um, but if you've seen an anechoic chamber, it's literally like this box inside a, a room where all six surfaces have these giant acoustic rams, these big pyramids of, you know, absorptive material. And so anechoic and low frequencies, diffusion in the mids and high frequencies. Um, in my new place, I'm going to experiment with a new product. Um, this is all... Uh, I've become friends with uh, this guy, Jurgen Strauss, who makes those speakers, and he's very generously helping me with uh, designing my new room. And it's like having the Einstein of acoustics helping you with your control room. He is yeah. unbelievably brilliant, and I'm just I'm so grateful that he's, he wants to help me. Um, and, uh, and so he told me about a new product that was developed in Germany that is only six inches deep. And, and he's telling me, I haven't actually used it yet, but I'm going to, I'm going to experiment with it with my next place that, um, it's an open window, what they call an open window, which means no reflections. It's basically like cutting a hole in the wall down to 60 Hertz with six inches of depth. I don't even know how that's possible, but they're claiming that that's actually what's happening. If that's true, that's the thing to use. <laughs> that's, the, that's the holy grail has finally arrived. That's it right there. You know, do you, do you believe you sorry. dabble diffusion as much as you want on top of it? You know? Yeah. So would you, so it sounds like from what you're saying is that the low end is the, is the hardest demon to fight out. It's like you can, you can treat mid range reflections that easy with, with stuff. That's easy. You can throw up some blankets or foam or whatever. And that stuff, you know, like the flutters on the window that you have, if you just put some curtains, just pull the curtains when you're mixing, you know? And that it'll it'll fix that. That stuff's easy to deal with. The low frequencies take because it's a lot of energy, very long waveforms, and so it takes a lot to absorb all of that energy. And uh, it's it you know it's it's not easy. So wow, that's definitely uh, well, that's that's definitely gonna uh, probably made the debate go on longer and harder now. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> but. Get yourself a good you know a flat microphone like any one of the Earthworks microphones. Get a, a piece of software like Fuzz Measure or Roomy Q Wizard that will graph the frequency response in room and see what you're hearing. That was the total revelation for me. Well, that actually really helps because we've got the Sonoworks microphone. Um, oh, great! Yeah. yeah, I've been I've been using that in rooms where you know for for quick setups. Um, and uh, where I just, I needed to fix it really quick. Um, Sonarworks is awesome. They, you you like it, it yeah. Yeah, and the, the, the latest revision of it is better because it gives you more control over how it's ultimately tuned instead of just making it flat. I like a lot of extra low end in my monitoring. It's just funner to work, you know? And, um, and so, uh, so, you know, now it lets you do that. And I just, I just retuned um, the speakers in the room, you know, in the studio that I'm selling with Sonarworks. It sounds amazing in there. You can totally crank it up. Super fun. That's really good to hear because we, you know, got Sonarworks as our first thing. And, you know, we've got just as a, I think we've got a subwoofer under here. We've got an untreated corner over there. We had half treated yeah. corner up there. And again, no, no absorption really to speak of anyway. Again, you know, some, some rock wall that's about three inches deep. And so Sonarworks, you know, produced the graph, the report says what you're, your mix position is like, and there was, uh, I think, an additional 12 decibels of everything below 100 hertz. Oh, cool. Well, that's actually not a bad thing to have, you know? Because, yeah. um, you, you, you know, ultimately it'll give you more headroom, um, you know, and that happens when you back speakers right up against the wall. You know, you'll get that lift in the low end. I actually don't mind it that much because I like lots of low end, but, you know, um, but yeah, I, I you know, 
if, if it, you're, you're on the right path, it sounds like you're using the right tools. So yeah. I'm sure it'll come together. Great. Well, you know, thank you for the time. Again, you know, I've said it before, there's so much more we could go into. And so uh, we'll, we'll get back in touch. Hopefully we can do this again. Sure. We'll find a time. We'll do part two. Great stuff. Well, thanks very much. Uh, have a great day. Have a great time uh, selling the building and, and, and setting up a new place. All right. Fingers crossed. Here we go. <laughs>